podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of our Red Inca and YouTube network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. So let's get cracking with the latest Spotify Live Wagon Wheel on Red Inca and Jared Kimber's YouTube channel. If you haven't checked out at 99.94DM yet, we're on Twitter. It's my new podcast network. It's going to be the home of Cricket Audio. That's the aim. At the very least, it's very exciting. You should go over there. But I've got that T-shirt on today if you're looking at the YouTube. If you're not looking at the YouTube, I've now described that I'm wearing that T-shirt. So either way, I think we're covered. HW341 says, I think it's pretty much accepted that of the current big four batters, Williamson and Coley are both easily getting into their country's all-time test 11s. But where do Root and Smith fit into England and Australia's top five, six? It's really interesting. Williamson's automatic. Is Coley an automatic? I mean, he's in the best six batters of all time, but where do you kind of fit him, I suppose, is the more interesting thing when you've got Raul Dravid, uh, Sachin Dendulkar. Obviously, Gavaska goes up the order. There's some good players. Yeah, you're probably right. Maybe, maybe he slips in at five there. Smith probably bats at four, doesn't he, um, in an all-time Australian 11? You know, unless we see a massive drop-off at the end of his career, I really can't see how he doesn't get into an Australian team. Certainly batting at four or five, I would have thought, is is very natural for him. Root, not sure he quite would slip in automatically. I get the feeling he, he wouldn't be that far away. The problem with Root is he's going up against a lot of England players, especially pre-World War II, with incredible numbers. And even from the 50s um, into the early 60s were just incredible numbers. But a lot of those players obviously bullied a easier, um, you know, the, the, the teams weren't as strong. England was a much better team in that point. It's whether you, how you weigh up route compared to those other outside facets. Uh, I think if you're saying he's obviously more talented than some of those other players, but was he better in his era than some of those other players were, which is where it gets all a bit tricky. But it's a really good question. I think you make a fairly good case for all four of them to be in their, in their all-time 11s, but you could probably also make a good ca- case for, you know, uh, one or two batters to knock some of them out, everyone except for Williamson, who's just a lock. Christopher says, how easy or hard do you find your work-life balance as a freelancer but also a fan, and is it easy to take a break when it's also your passion? Um, yeah, I think, you know, cricket in general is uh, obviously just a, such a major part of my life. Um, you know, last night I took my kid to uh, cricket training um, and was watching on the Skygo app um, the uh, Chennai game as well. So, look, it's, it's a big part of it. I don't think the work-life balance is any different. I, look, I work a lot, and I don't think there's any field that I would have liked to have worked in that I wouldn't have worked, liked to work a lot. So, you know, in my old job, you know, on my old jobs back in the old days, I, I spent most of my time calling in sick. I'm almost never sick from this job unless I physically can't sit at the keyboard and do what I need to do. So I think any job that I was going to get in that way, whether it would be writing novels or writing screenplays or making films or, you know, one of, you know, commentating, any of those things, I would always probably take more work. So there would always be that balance there. What I try and do probably is I probably have less recreational time than uh, most people of, of my age and you know my kind of job which is a choice i've made to try and build 99.94 and my cricket network before that and the youtube and all these different things that wasn't necessarily the case at crick info but my work day is probably split up into two or three chunks and a lot of that is around my my children and my wife um and that's fine that works for us I see my children a lot more probably than a, a normal dad who works in a city or in, in a job that has to go in in the morning and come back late in the afternoon or late in the evening. But yeah, it's tough. And also, you know, just there's a certain point when the IPL game finished yesterday and the fair break game came on. Because it was fair break, it was an easy of, oh, I can put this on. I want to see what this is like um, and, and, you know, we'll watch some of this. But had it been, uh, you know, another franchise tournament, I probably would have been like, I don't need to see this. And I think that, uh, there was a young writer recently who wants to follow a similar sort of career path to me. Uh, he's already very successful, but he wants to sort of move it to be a little bit more 
he wants to kind of move what he's doing and make it a little bit more global. And, you know, and, and I was saying to him that, you know, the thing for doing what we do, and I think I taught, I taught myself a lot of this, but I've also followed Zach Lowe a lot, the NBA writer, just to fine tune it. I think I was already doing a lot of the stuff that he was doing, but you kind of have to follow narratives at a certain point. Sometimes teams aren't going to be as important and sometimes things are going to be really important. So you have to know when New Zealand's important and ramp up and you have to know enough about them that you're not starting from zero at all the time. That doesn't mean I need to watch every game. And I think that's something I've worked out around 2015 that there's so much cricket. And before I was trying to watch every single ball of every single game. Now I'm a lot smarter of what I do and what I don't do. And a lot of that's just becoming a better professional as much as anything else. Uh, Ziad says, is there an argument for Shikhar Dhawan to be considered for India's T20 team? I wouldn't have thought so unless you're talking about, you know, Rohit and, and Virat not playing. But, you know, based on the kind of team that they have, I don't think Shikhar Dhawan is my obvious choice. There's obviously the left-hand element of it. I think I did a video last year of just how much he's improved. And I think he's been phenomenal at the way he's, you know, taken himself from this level to another level. Because I do think he was a disappointing T20 player for a long time. I'd have to have a you know a much closer look, but I I just can't see how fitting another anchor into that side is going to improve it at this point. I think their speciality realistically should probably be you know um, KR Rule is an anchor who can score really quickly. You know who knows where Virat Kohli is going to be. Obviously Rohit Sharma is going to be there. You're talking about a fourth anchor at this point, or you're talking about dropping Virat Kohli, which may happen, but it has to happen for Shikhar to have a spot there. Satchmo says, have you ever become disillusioned about any of your childhood heroes after discovering an unpleasant fact about their politics or character? For example, I find it hard to separate Dennis Compton as a cricketer from his support for South Africa. Yeah, I, I mean, look, it's fair, Satchmo. I think, I mean, you talk about their character, but it's also meeting them, right? You know, there are players that I grew up idolizing that I've spent a lot of time with and that I don't particularly like. And there are other players I didn't like as players, like Steve Harmison. I never really liked Harmy as a player. But as a colleague and as a friend, uh, he's an absolutely top person and, you know, feel bad for all the bad things I've written about him as I've apologized to him many times over the years. So, yeah, look, it does happen. I think we had the question last week about politics, didn't we? Um, and someone was saying, you know, why aren't the players coming out on this side of the issue? And I was like, well, you're assuming they're going to come out on the, the progressive left-wing side of the issue. That's not been my experience. I've certainly been in a lot of situations with current and former players talking about politics where I'm like, we're about an inch away from QAnon or flat earth theory here. So yeah, it is what it is. I think that it's, imp I've had some very bad run-ins with players over the years, former players, and you still have to write about them or their career or, and current players. I think that you still have to be dispassionate. I don't think you can be a hundred percent, but you do have to, you know, especially in my job, try and look at the facts when you're doing analysis, but it does make you look differently at people. I don't think that's even slightly debatable. I probably always thought Michael Holding was a great cricketer, but, you know, having spent a little bit of time with him and then having to see, you know, what he's tried to do over the last couple of years, it's very hard not to admire the person he's certainly become over the last few years of his life, but probably was for a, a good portion of that as well. So it goes both ways, I suppose. Reverse swing is one of the most incredible parts of our game, but it doesn't happen by accident. It comes from a team effort where each and every member has a job to prepare the ball as well as they can, and then through that group effort, they can get that ball to move gracefully through the air. And you know all this because you're a smart cricket fan, and yet you go out on the field to play with your balls in disarray. If you treat your pubic hair in a shoddy manner, you won't be able to pick up as many wickets as you'd like. But Manscaped have the invention for you, the Lawn Mower 4.0, guaranteed to make your balls reverse. Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 is as graceful as a cover drive, as efficient as a Yorker in the depth, and the Lawnmower 4.0 is a true all-rounder, none of that bits and pieces nonsense. So if you're desperate for a breakthrough with your pubic hair, try Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code REDINCA. That's 20% off with free worldwide shipping at manscaped.com and use the code REDINCA. Let's get your balls going the other way. Uh, AB says, pretty clear that Virat Kohli should be dropped on cricketing merit, but it's too important to RCB and IPL's viewership sponsorship for that to happen. See, I don't think it is pretty clear that he should be dropped on cricketing merit. I don't think, I mean, this is, it goes back to the David Warner point from last year, right? I think anyone who was following that knew that that was just a normal T20 slump and that he was eventually going to get out of it. And he was absolutely incredible not long after that. So I don't agree with the original point. Also, when you talk about dropped on cricketing merit, so if you drop David Warner or Owen Morgan, right, from an IPL team, you are replacing them with the 
fifth or sixth best overseas player you probably have in your squad, who's another batter, who's probably been smashing the ball all around the world somewhere else and is ready to go, or has probably played in the IPL and been fairly successful before. If you're dropping Virat Kohli, you're either picking a senior player who's probably already passed their best, or you're picking a junior player who's probably not ready yet, right? Then you're assuming that they're going to do better than Virat Kohli. Well, very possible they'll do worse, and not even a little bit worse, but maybe a lot worse than what he's been able to do. That's why I have a problem with that particular thing. But in a league where all teams get an equal purse, regardless of revenue, how should a GM balance the two factors? Well, GM probably won't make that decision. As far as I'm aware, no GMs actually decide who plays and who doesn't in IPL teams. Like There are individual cases that are slightly different. Um, I would think in that case, almost everyone would get together. Coaches, captains, maybe even Virat Kohli himself would get together and there would be a chat uh, in a good environment. In a bad environment, you might just get a captain or a coach say, I don't want him anymore, which is going to cause you big problems. Forget that it's Virat Kohli. I've seen this with David Warner at Sunrise, but I've seen this with other teams. You don't understand the kind of destabilizing impact it has when you drop a player who's getting paid that much money compared to everyone else. You know, other players are like, well, I'm only getting paid this much and I'm supposed to be just a fill-in and now I'm having to play out of position because the star player is going... It, it's really the politics of it. Is It's far more than what you think it is. But if you're asking me from a playing you know, perspective, I'd have to have a look at RCB's roster and see who they've got and, and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I certainly don't think it's an obvious thing. You don't drop players like that for a reason. Um, someone said to me the other day, oh, if this was Steve Smith and the Big Bash would be dropped, and be like, if it's Steve Smith and the Big Bash, he also wouldn't be dropped. We don't drop players like that. Kennedy says, with the Azim Rafiq story becoming widely discussed, have you heard any parallel being drawn to caste causing similar issues in Indian cricket? I mean, that's always been mentioned. I don't think it's just caste as well. You know, uh, Indian cricket, and I suppose Pakistan cricket as well, uh, Sri Lankan cricket, also have regional biases that, um, that, that cause problems. For instance, you know, we know there there are probably, was it from the, the east of India, were there two professional cricketers, first-class cricketers, to come out of that area? Seems kind of weird um, that, that we haven't, you know, that there haven't been more. You know, uh, obviously the Tamil cricketers in Sri Lanka, but also cricketers on the east coast of Sri Lanka have, have, have struggled. So I think while you get race, you get all these other little things in those sorts of systems because they're amateur. So... You know, there would be homophobia, even if some people aren't actually out and gay and people think they are gay. There would be caste problems. There would be family problems. There would be class problems. There's geography problems. I think the more amateur a cricket structure is, the more you get those sorts of things. There's probably also racism stuff. You know, there's no doubt that people talk about dark skin and light skin people in in India. I'm, I'm sure those things come across as well. Like when we hear something about, you know, the Yorkshire system or, you know, some of the other ones that we, you know, that, that have come up. Uh, South Africa is another recent example. I was talking to a West Indian cricketer recently about the way that black people in the West Indies treat Indian people of Indian origin and the way that Indian people of Indian origin treat a black West Indians. To this day, is still an issue at times uh, within West Indies cricket. You know, race is Another way to divide people, class, education, all those different things matter. And if you've got too many people from one background in any organization, whether it be cricket or otherwise, same problems keep happening. People keep hiring people that are like them. And I think that's one thing that is, it certainly happened at times in cricket. I mean, if you want to take this to the end of, of the degree, it's like, why are so many New Zealand coaches pick so many New Zealand players in the IPL? And obviously the Australians are even a bigger problem than that, right? That's a, it's a, like a human instinct at a certain point, I think. And it doesn't work and it's terrible and it should go away. So the biggest cast issue I probably heard is Vinod Kambli within India, which is, I've, I've been trying to do a big video on him for a while and I'll eventually I'll do one. It's a real, I think it's a really, really interesting story because he's such a fascinating and divisive character, even separate to his, the cast that he comes from. And also, you know, a fantastic player as well, uh, but also, but then ran into it maybe an even better era of players. So the whole thing with him, really, really fascinating. Um, but yeah, I mean, cast plays a part there in the same way that class does in many other places. And, you know, as humans, we spend most of our times working out how to divide ourselves from each other. And it's just, it's mostly nonsense. Some of us stand up when we go to the toilet and some of us sit down. Everything else is pretty much just mammals with not enough hair on our body except for, you know, Ricky Ponting and Glenn Maxwell's arms. 
Duncan says, if you wanted to offend the maximum number of cricket fans on Twitter, which Indian cricketing great would you casually publicly describe as overrated? Ooh, which Indian great is overrated? This is a weird way of, of spinning this. It's very rare that you do a deep dive into a player who's considered great and that they're not actually great. I mean, it depends on how you feel with Ganguly. I kind of feel that most Indian cricket fans would probably think that Ganguly is not a great. Maybe if you said that on Twitter, that would cause a problem. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think you can look at his numbers any other way and decide he's certainly not a great, a very important person in Indian cricket. And an Indian great, perhaps, but not an all-time great. Kapildev's batting's always one, only because him and Richard Hadley were put into that all-rounder class with both them and, and Imran Khan, which is a bit like the Fab Four, isn't it? You have four guys sort of coming through at a similar time, um, all dominating in the 80s. I think that Kapildev when you break him down, was probably a player capable of great innings rather than someone that you would ever want into your top six. You're fantastic number eight and probably a very, very good and occasionally great number seven. Better batter than Richard Hadley. I think Richard Hadley gets the friendliest all-rounder <laughs> rating uh, based on on what the, all the, the four of those skills were. I'm not sure that takes away from Kapildev, though, because I think his bowling is underrated because he spent so much of his time bowling very, very long spells in unfavorable conditions even compared to someone like Imran Khan so I don't know I'm trying to think of who else is a great who doesn't deserve to be a great I think they've got a couple of players that probably deserve higher praise Vishwanath is someone that sort of automatically comes to, to mind Chandrasekhar as well I don't I can't think of any great players who have popped out at me I kind of ruined your question there, Duncan, but I can't think of anyone. I mean, Gangul is the easy one because his record isn't that great and he's mostly remembered for the attitude he brought India rather than on the field. He was obviously a very, very good one-day player, but not an all-time one-day player and test player and you're not at that level either. So he's probably the, the one there, but I'm not sure that he is considered a great player, which is, you know, I'm getting subjective onto subjective at that point. Ian says, both the new IPL sides have started exceptionally well. Do you think there was actually an advantage in having a completely clean slate to start from? Yeah, I think most of us thought they would struggle a little bit more just because they didn't have that core of four players. I do think that there was a few players that were maybe retained on potential. Not that they were wrong retainments, but that allowed Gujarat and Lucknow to maybe get better squads earlier on. You know, if you look at someone like Umar Malik, like he has actually gone on to have a great year. But, wow, actually, I can't remember anyone at the Sunrises that they wouldn't have, <laughs> they wouldn't have wanted to retain. But, you know, Delhi was a perfect example of Delhi probably. I, I've seen so many people complain about the players that Delhi retained, and I get it. But they probably had seven players that you could have retained quite easily. And, you know, not having that available to them meant that Gujarat and Lucknow were probably in a slightly better situation. I suppose Mumbai is another one. Right, you know, with the two pandias going and them both playing so well after not playing particularly well for for a little while, especially Krunal Pandia, that has probably helped the new franchises a little bit. So it's probably that little bit of the way that it expanded um, and the way that the talent went as much as anything. I'm really interested in how it goes over the full four years if we have another mega auction and everything else. Uh, more so, just because I don't think we're in a great situation. It's so early on in the first season. You know, Mumbai don't have Jofra Archer and there are other complications for other teams. And after the mega auction, it's probably almost the biggest panic time and you don't know who your best players are and everything else. It'd be really interesting to see if over the whole four-year cycle, if Gujarat and Lucknow are, you know, above 500 teams that whole time. Uh, that would be really, really interesting for me. If that's the case, then you might be right. Maybe that having that clean slate was better. Um, I, I don't know. Abilash says, who's more valuable to a T20 team, Deepak Chahar or Harshal Patel? You'd have to do a very deep dive on that. On a very basic level, Deepak Chahar takes wickets up the front, so they are worth more. Harshal Patel, actually, I, I haven't looked at his record as much this year, but last year took an incredible amount of wickets in the middle, which is not when people take wickets that much, which are also are valued a lot. The wickets that usually aren't valued much are, you know, the bowler ends up with 25 wickets and, you know, he's taken 20 of them in the last three or two overs of the games. It's not that they're not worth wickets. It's still a handy thing to do, but has nowhere near the impact that Harshal Patel or Deepak Chahar can do. So Rabada had some very overhyped seasons. This, I don't know what his overall numbers are, but this is a much better season for Rabada than we've seen some of the other years where he's just taken ridiculous amounts of wickets because of when he's taking the wickets. 
So I'd have to have a look a lot more at Deepak Chahar and Harshal Patel directly, but I would think of Harshal Patel's overall figures, and I can't remember Deepak's um, off the top of my head, but on Harshal's overall figures, I would assume he probably still edges him out, but it's probably not the level of domination that you would assume it to be based on everything else. So those were our Patreon questions. Remember, if you want to ask questions first on Patreon, feel free to sign up on Patreon. Go to the first class or above tier and you can ask a question. I put out a message each week. So a huge shout out to everyone on Patreon. This podcast is only available because of Patreon. Um, it was the Patreon subscribers that I put on the second episode for. Let's get to the callers though. Arnav, you're on the air. Thanks, Jared. My question to you is like about T20 cricket. Is it weak link sport or a strong link sport? Like throughout this IPL, I'm not able to really think that which factor weighs more like for a team like Gujarat obviously luck has played a huge role like they can't finish so many games that they have finished but like looking at their team they have great bowlers but like but they don't have great fourth or fifth bowlers in my opinion and their batting I mean some players players have clicked like they've been lucky but which is it like weak link sport or strong link sport so generally in T20 cricket you would assume that the bowling is a weak link sport and the batting is strong link but you're talking about you're talking about what ten, um, nine games ten games that's not something that we will always see over nine or ten games so you can cover gaps uh in weak bowling attacks if the part-timers step up or if the top order continue uh, the, the sorry that uh, the bowlers up front regularly take wickets uh or if you have a very strong part of your bowling attack that can clamp down on, a, let's say, a middle section or something like that, right? But yeah, on a, ba on a basic level, if you have a bowler who is just not up to scratch and is your fifth bowler, so, I mean, I suppose uh, Punjab was, might be one of the best examples of that with, when they were using Odin and Liam Livingston. Uh, I think Punjab last year might have been a good example of that as well. Rajasthan might have been a good example of that last year. I'm trying to remember what their team was. But uh, when you have that, it actually weakens all your bowlers, right? Because you have to spend all of your time juggling around your attack to make it work. If all your bowlers are in great form and they all have good matchups and they're just absolutely top-class bowlers, that's not going to be a problem. If they're not, then that becomes a problem. Batting, I think, you know, the best way of looking at batting at the moment is Rajasthan. You know, Josh Butler is making the runs of two players, right? Uh, that's like a basketball player, you know, scoring 30 points a night and also dishing out 10 assists a night. It's probably not going to last all season because those numbers almost never never do. But, the, you know, he can overcome a whole player, right? Which means that they go into um, lineups with Ashwin at seven and Bolt at eight. And it's not as big a problem because Butler is batting for two players, right? You can't really bowl for two players. I suppose peak Bumrah, peak Rashid Khan, maybe peak Mitchell Stark, allow more, uh, you know, for you to get away with, but they're still not being able to completely overcome the fact that, you know, if, I don't know, if Riam Parag or Tiwatia was your um, fifth bowler, do you know what I mean? I don't even think Rashid Khan or, or Bumrah could overcome that sort of uh, fifth bowler. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a weak link, strong link. And just to explain it for people who don't know what weak link and strong link is, it comes from, does it come from... Uh, Soconomics, I think, was that the book? The guy, Stefan, who's written, who wrote Soconomics has just written the book with Tim Wigmore about cricket as well, uh, which will be out fairly soon, I think. But yeah, the, the idea being that basketball is a strong link sport, so you're better off to spend way more money on your best player in basketball. And uh, football or soccer is a weak link sport, and you're better off to make sure that you have fewer weak players because if your left back is absolutely useless they're still going to let in a lot of goals. Whereas if you have a your fifth player or, or your ninth player on a basketball team, they might not even play that many minutes and they're probably just there for a specialty position. Whereas actually it's a lot, it makes a lot more sense to spend all your money on, you know, Nikola Jokic or, or Joel Embiid or, um, uh, you know, Giannis or one of those sorts of levels of players. Um, and so cricket sort of has that, uh, T20 cricket sort of has that where if you can spend a lot of money on three or four batters and they have the ability to bat deep, and score quickly, then you're better off to spend the majority of your money separately, not on strengthening that middle order or that lower middle order, but actually getting uh, five competent bowlers into your 11. Can I ask me? Oh, yeah, question. Thank you. Yeah, quick. 
No, no, my question to you was that Hassan Chima and like that Pakistani analyst was talking to me in some podcast about like the T20 data because the conditions vary so much. Like we don't really have a great like set of T20 data with this edition being read in just uh, three uh, values with identical like wickets. Is it better off for like for guys like you or you do you prefer like variety of conditions as a data set or data part? Well, most cricket is played in a variety of conditions. So realistically, the more conditions you play in and the more games that you play, the better. I mean, I, whether it's Hassan or me or any analyst, I, we just want more games. You know, eventually if we get to synthetic wickets, then a lot of our problems will probably come away or, or at least hybrid synthetic wickets. But as cricket is currently run, we just need more games. It doesn't matter if they're all played in UAE or if they're played all around the world. Uh, we need more data to see, uh, you know, we can contextualize things in different gra- ga- grounds and, and, and cont- uh, you know, uh, places, but we just need more games. Um, and we're probably the way that T20 is run. I'm not sure we'll ever get the amount of games that we need to have the data that most of us would be happy with, which is kind of the baseball model. Thanks for your question. Thanks. Uh, Bamshi. Hey, Dad, can you hear me? I can. What's your question? I remember you spoke a couple of times about left arm wrist spinners don't develop the same way as uh, right arm wrist spinners. And I've been struggling to find that uh, podcast or video. Would you mind explaining how and why that happened? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I should get Brad Hogg on a, on a, on a chat with me once to explain it. But essentially, they develop differently because where they are pitching the ball is different. So if you're a right arm leg spinner, you're running basically straight at, let's say, off stump, and the ball is coming at, at a straight angle. If you're a left arm wrist spinner, the most of your balls are the right-handers, you actually need to open up and drop your front arm a little bit because the ball needs to float out further to the left side. It's very hard to come on an angle to be able to do that because if you go too much on an angle, the ball spins back. So what generally happens is the front side of a leg spinner, so that left arm, is really strong. It should be. I should say <laughs> it's not always, but Anil Kumbles is and Mushtaq Ahmed's is and Abdul Qadir and Shane Warne's really strong front side. When you're a left arm wrist spinner, because you're trying to get that ball further over outside the off stump or at least at the off stump of the right hander, but you're coming from the other side of the wicket, it means that naturally I don't think you actually have as strong a front arm. And it's like a technical point that I suppose if you thought, if you're, if you're a left-handed tennis server, I'm assuming there are slight variations in the way that you serve based on that, right? So, so, so left armers have, have all these different quirks in their bowling. So left arm finger spinners almost never have deuceres, right? Or balls that go the other way, right? Left arm swing bowlers, I can count on the top of my head how many left arm swing bowlers in the world can consistently swing the ball away from right hand batters. Right? It was was a macaron back in the day, and probably Jack Shantry for Worcester. <laughs> There's almost none, right? That swing the ball into left handers or away from right handers. And the same with left and with same with left arm wrist spinners. They're, they're bowling the ball way further across. And so the front of their body is completely different, which means that their action is not as repeatable. The repeatable part of a leg spinner's action is really that front left arm uh, getting up strong and pulling down. Now, there are bowlers who've cheated that and done different versions of it, like Samuel Badri and, and all sorts of things. But I think that if you want to be a wrist spinner and you want to consistently land the ball on the right line and length with energy, you need that front arm to go to pull through. And because of the fact that when you're bowling all the way to the other side of the wicket on a different angle, um, I think that what happens is naturally for left arm is they collapse a little bit to allow that ball to go out there. And by collapsing a little bit, it means that their actions are not as repeatable. Now, I've never talked to Brad Hogg about this, but I've talked to Gareth Batty, who's a, you know, a spin bowling coach or now head coach at Surrey. I've talked to a couple of other spinners about that as well. And I've never heard anyone else talk about it. So it could just be five of us all agreeing with each other. But Brad Hogg probably was one of the most repeatable left arm wrist spinners we've ever seen. And he did have a very good front arm. There are other ways around it, uh, for sure. But I think that's a reason why it's very rare to see a left arm wrist spinner with a very strong front arm. Because it actually, at a certain point, it kind of gets in the way. It's not where you want to land. It's not helping you as much land the ball where you want to land it. And so... The problem with that is all the other problems it brings in afterwards. Um, but I will eventually do a video on it because I think the whole thing's really fascinating. 
Um, Because I don't think we talk about the fact that left-arm bowlers are playing a different game to everyone else. And it does affect, sometimes it affects how how much they try things. Not so much with left-arm wrist spinners, but certainly with left-arm quicks and left-arm finger spinners. Sometimes I think, you guys have so many more options here that you're not using. (laughs) It doesn't really make any sense to me. So yeah, I hope that makes sense. Did, did, Did that sort of follow for you? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, can I ask the follow-up question? Yeah, just be careful. You're just playing with, a, with the phone or the microphone and it's um, rustling a little bit. Oh, my apologies. That's all right. So these quirks you've noticed with uh, left-hand bowlers, have you noticed anything with left-handed batsmen? I'm just fascinated by left-handedness and different sports. Uh, left-handed batters, what, so what have we got there? I mean, the, the biggest one is the most recent one, isn't it? Where they basically... Yeah, bowling around the wicket to them, I suppose, is the most obvious one. I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, I mean, I got a feeling left-handed batters don't play as many cover drives as right-handed batters. I think that's a thing. I think I've looked that up before. I hope, I hope I've looked that up before. One of the more interesting things is the uh, you know that left-handed batters have to completely change their game in the second innings in a way right-handed batters don't because of the foot marks, especially if there's a left-arm finger spinner or a wrist spinner playing. That doesn't happen every game, but, uh, you know, they have to deal with foot marks a lot more than right, right-handed batters do. So I think that sort of, I think that changes um, little bits of their game. But I think the biggest one probably in the old days was the LBWs. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it was very, very hard for bowlers to get consistent LBWs against left-handed batters. And I don't think that's the case now with DRS and us understanding a little bit more where the stumps are and everything else. Oh, Actually, there's one, and I think I might have done something on this recently, but I'm sure I can't remember, but I'm trying to think what video it was in. But left-handers are far worse against off-spinners than right-handers are against left-arm finger spinners. And I think that almost goes back to, I don't want to call them lazy because I think that's unfair, but they don't develop their games in the same way that right-handers have to develop. If if you're a right-hander, you don't have a natural advantage, right? You might be tall, you might be fast on your feet, you might have those sorts of advantages, but you don't have a natural advantage over the opposition the way that most left-handers do over right-handers. And I think that what happens is that the way the left-handers develop, it's a bit like the old seven-footers in the in the NBA. In the old days, they didn't have to learn all their all the different skills, right? Because you were seven foot tall. And then when especially when the NBA opened up to the rest of the world and seven-footers came from everywhere, suddenly you had to deal with a seven-footer from, you know, um, from Serbia or Croatia who could shoot three pointers. Um, and then you had a seven footer from Australia who could be a point guard and a seven footer from Greece who could be a point guard. And suddenly it's like, oh God, uh, we have to up our skills. Lumbering seven footers don't exist anymore. And I think that with, with right arm bowlers bowling around the wicket and, and matchups being much more prevalent and DRS catching left-handers out way more, I think we'll see a natural progression of left-handers, but there's absolutely no doubt that left-handers struggle um, a lot more against the ball being spun away from them than right-handers do. And um, I would say that's just them not rounding their game out as as much as they should. Great. Thanks, Harry. No worries. Thanks for your question. That was all questions. How deep? Yeah, Jared. Hey, mate. What's your question? Just a quick two questions. First one is, as we, I'm seeing Arshdeep Singh, what is he doing in death overs that it's really difficult to hit him for boundaries? But he's not taking many wickets, though. You're talking about Arshdeep Singh, the left armor? Yes, the Arshdeep Singh who plays for Punjab. Yeah, I find him really interesting because I remember when he first came in, I think he might have taken a lot of wickets at the death one year and had a really good record, but quite a high economy. And I do remember thinking at the time, you know, occasionally we see an Indian bowler come in and they get very much hyped up, but you look at them and you go, like, I'm not, this is not repeatable. Who's who's the, um, the left arm bowler who bowled for... Uh, Rajasthan last year, Chetan... Chetan Sakaria. Sakaria, yep. So last year, I remember watching him early on and everyone was hyping him up thinking, I'm not sure this is repeatable. That was my real thought with Ashdeep Singh. From almost from the first time I saw him play, I thought, I don't know if he's going to be able to do this game after game. I think he's got a couple of very, very good skills. One thing is, and this is going to go back to the left-handers from before, he's got a very good cutter as a left-arm bowler. And when you're a left-arm bowler and you've got a very good cutter, it means you're 66% of the time at least spinning the ball away from the right-hand batters, which means that when people are trying to line him up, the ball's going away from their eye line. And 
I think that's a really, really underrated skill. I think that's absolutely phenomenal to be able to do that consistently. And I think it's probably underused by some left-arm bowlers as well. Again, maybe because they haven't felt they need to. But I, I think from the time I saw, there, there was a test match years ago when Mitchell Johnson did it against, well, it might have been against India or, or South Africa in Australia. And he was bowling low arm sling off cutters around the wicket, 130 kilometers an hour. And I was thinking, he's unplayable if he does this. And then he stopped doing it and went back to try and become a swing bowler again. And then Mustafiza did it for a little while. And, you know, we've seen bowlers do it. I wonder if, I know Arshdeep's not coming around the wicket, but it's that same basic principle. In fact, Mustafiza usually did it from over the wicket as well, where you quite often he's pitching the ball maybe just outside the leg stump eye line. But the spin um, and the angle that he gets to go across uh, gives him a natural advantage. That's my best guess. Uh, I haven't done a deep dive onto him yet. I do find him really interesting, though. I mean, I'm trying to think, was it three years ago he had his, that big year where he took a bunch of wickets? Was that the year? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. That's uh, three years back when he came into scene with Punjab. Yeah. So, I mean, from that moment onwards, I've always had a bit of a thing about him, but I've been kind of waiting to see if he gets better or if he gets worse, if that makes sense. And he hasn't, he's actually sort of maintained a, a, a similar kind of level for a while now. And it's probably, you know, one of those bowlers that I should take a, a you know, a closer look at. But my guess is that has something to do with either the amount of rotations he puts on the ball or perhaps the, the sideways spin that he gets, or he's just very accurate at the wide Yorkers. And because of his angle, that becomes very tricky. Um, it might be a combination of everything I've just said as well. Um, but my guess is that that is why he would be able to do it because he's not particularly fast and he doesn't have, you know, he's not he's not tall or particularly short or, do you know, there's nothing real outlier about him other than the left arm nature of him. Um, but yeah, I think he's a really fascinating ball. I'm not sure if I have a great answer for you there. Um, I, but, but those are the things that would make sense to me if he had them. Yeah, I was most fascinated by how he bluffed the batsman by set, setting different uh, field and uh, bowling different ball. I was just fascinated by that by him. Yeah, no, we've seen that before. Uh, Harry Gurney was obviously an expert of that. There was an, you're talking about another left armor who bowled a lot of slower balls. So, you know, that plays a big part of it. it. I don't think our bowlers have quite got to the level of really truly understanding that side of it yet. And look, I've talked to bowlers about it. It's almost a thing that they feel, not touches about, but they get it, but they don't know how to make it work in practice. And, you know, you do the bluff field that doesn't work once and then the captain doesn't want you to do it again. You almost need a captain to be involved with it. But there's an element of that involved in every death bowler, right? <laughs> you you know, at the death, you're almost never set for the bouncer, but you have to have, you know, you, you know you're going to have to probably, or mo anyone over 135K is going to have to bowl a bouncer at a certain point. So, um, yeah, I think that could be part of it. I'll probably... You know, I, I, hopefully I'll, I'll take a closer look and see if I can see anything specific. But um, it could be a combination of the four kind of things that we mentioned. Anyway, thanks for your question. Bosco, are you there? Yeah, Jared. So my question was about the cricket fans. And I, I mean, IPL is on. I talked to a lot of fans who are just uh, very obsessed with their uh, IPL teams. And I was thinking about the continuum of cricket fan fandom where you are just obsessed with your team and you don't only watch those matches going on to people who watch a little bit of test cricket and then uh, also a little bit of world cup and then going even further uh, to like like people like you and maybe other people who are watching every, nearly every cricket and have an objective view to things so my question to you is that it, it, does the evolution take place and in, does in different countries you find a different proportion of people who are more analytically minded and want to analyze the game versus just following their team? No, actually, I think the biggest underrated market in cricket is the home team fans. I think in international cricket, weirdly enough, we kind of get it, but I don't think we've got it at all for domestic cricket uh, or for franchise cricket. Um, and it's a big part of 99.94's kind of my thinking with that was that, you know, there are a lot of people who do just like individual teams. So I don't think it's that different. Uh, I don't think the percentages are that different. I think in England and India, they're probably the two cultures that try and push themselves most as the most um, cricket fan type of people. My experience really of especially younger Indian people and living in England is that's not really true. There isn't like a higher percentage of cricket fans in England who love cricket all around the world than there is in other places. It probably would vary. I think that's fair, but I don't think it would vary much in percentage from from place to place. I really do believe that you know, the majority of 
cricket fans I've ever met in my life anywhere have been fans of their team. And then you get that small percentage, that sort of Crick Info percentage, if you will, of cricket fans out there, which are, you know, let's say optimistically it's between 5 and 10% are real hardcore cricket fans. And I would think that is probably a similar percentage in most countries. What you might get is if you're a West Indian fan or a New Zealand fan, because your team is so badly covered by the, by the, by the media in those places, maybe you become more of a general cricket fan just because, if you know, you have to, right? So you spend more time on Crick Info or Crick Buzz or on Twitter looking about cricket to find more stuff about your team than, than you would need to do if you're, um, you know, if you're, if you're an Indian or an English or an Australian fan, you can probably don't need to those other websites as much so maybe maybe there's something in that but honestly i would have thought the split would have been fairly similar um no matter where you go i think i think in most sports people like their team more than more than the sport if that makes sense um and then you get those small you know basketball people football people cricket people hockey people um who just absolutely love the sport and i think that's always going to be the the smallest amount i mean I suppose what what would be different would be like maybe tennis, um, athletics perhaps. But I think in general, I think most people, you know, cheer on the the local colours. Yeah. So the second question is, do you think the evolution happens that people, as they watch more game, they kind of slowly transition to become a more cricket fan or they the people, if they're the hardcore fans, they will remain like that? Because with T20, there's so many new fans who have come in. But uh, younger fans coming in, but I'm just wondering whether they will trans- transition to a higher order, uh, like uh, a true cricket fandom. Yes, I think if we have more T20 fans, we'll have more, if, if you want to call it true cricket fans or obsessed cricket fans or multi-cricket fans. Uh, I think that will definitely happen. I don't think that, you know, I, I think that as great a sport as T20 is, I think the more you learn about cricket, it's just you're going to seep naturally into the longer forms at times, whether it just be one day is for World Cups and maybe test matches, just your local team rather than all test match cricket. I think that will happen. I don't know if it would be on a similar percentage, but yeah, I I, I think that one of the great things about cricket is that there, there are so many sort of unknowable and, you know, uh, incredible aspects to the sport. You know, it's so multi-layered and uh, confusing that if you get in at T20 level and you really, really love everything about cricket and t20 i think you're naturally going to eventually start to watch some other stuff it might be a lower percentage than it used to be in the past i don't, I don't know but uh, i i have no no reason in fact i've seen i've seen it already start to happen and i also think there's a natural maturing right so maybe you get to a certain age and you know you, you're thinking to yourself oh i like that when i was a kid you know <laughs> there are a lot of people who like justin bieber when they're a kid probably um feel you know don't listen to justin bieber anymore right and I think there are elements of T20 cricket that are a little bit like that. There are some people who listen to pop music, the latest pop songs their whole life, and there are some people who only listen to pop music for five years and then repeat those five years for the rest of their 50 years. But if you want people to love country music, then you want them to listen to as much music as possible and find their way to country music or to rap or to, you know, uh, trip hop or whatever you know, subgenre that you have, um, the more people listening to music means the more people who are going to find those other things. And I think that's exactly the same uh, with, with the way that fandom works in cricket and, and in all sports, really. Yeah, thanks for that. That's right. Nikhil, you there? Yes, I am. What's your question, mate? Oh, good evening. So just a question. We've seen there's been a sort of a revolution in the way coaching, you know, you have specialist T20 coaches, you've got specialist test match coaches, etc. You've also got analysts working increasingly in the white ball game. My question to you is two-part. Why don't we see more analyst-specific roles or analyst roles in test match cricket where you probably have like, you know, so many more events in a game. They may be, they may not be as repeatable, but there's there are so many more events in a game and there's so, so much more data points that you can have. That's number one. And number two, apart from coaching, is the next revolution in cricket or if it's not already come, like specialized strength and conditioning or like fitness coaching related to, you know, specifically for T20. If, if you know, if, if you're in a T20 game, you need to feel in a certain way, you need to do certain things, you know, especially like boundary riders or even, uh, you know, like cotton bowls and stuff like that, or even, you know, some of the other stuff. So, uh, we, you know, we're seeing the uh, revolution in coaching and in analysts. When are you going to see analysts in test match cricket? Why haven't we seen it yet? We do have analysts in test match cricket. 
I don't think there's any test team in the world that would go into a game without some form of analysis now. Why don't we hear about it as much? Because you're talking about one game which is closed and one game which is open. T20 is 120 possessions to each team. Matchups make a huge amount of difference. Half the bowling changes in test cricket, as I tell people all the time, are because people are tired. Yeah, I can't think of any... Maybe Afghanistan don't have an analyst, but I'd be shocked if they didn't have an analyst, actually. Uh, Ireland certainly have uh, analysts. Um, so you would think that kind of everyone would have one. Um, it's a different kind of sport. So analysts play a big part, especially in developing players, I would have thought, in test cricket. Um, in, in overall tactics, certainly play a big role. But in T20 cricket, everything's more dramatic and everything gets mentioned a lot more. And I think matchups are probably in some ways, the most overspoken about part of T20 cricket, but they certainly, you know, they get mentioned a lot more. And that's also where analysis started. Haven't matchups always been there? Well, matchups have always been in cricket, yes. But we don't, we never used the term matchups before. And also, teams didn't balance their entire sides around it in the same way that they do now. DRS has probably made matchups more dramatic uh, in the way that it's, it's even the contest for left-handers and right-handers, and it's made spinning the ball away even more important than it used to be. So matchups have always been there, but, I mean, go back through the history. I mean, Nathan Lehman and, and Ben Jones just wrote a book about, you know, Australia turning up to India over and over again with a bunch of left-handers and India just bowling off spin to them and winning. So you say matchups have always been there, and yet Australia have for generations turned up with an excess amount of left-handers in their top order and uh, have been completely destroyed by offspin again and again. So that's the first part of your question. The second part of your question about the uh, coaching, yeah, I think it's already starting. Uh, you know, strength and conditioning, coaching, all those sorts of different specialities. You know, we're seeing hitting coaches coming through. We're seeing people who only work in uh, strength and conditioning in T20 teams. I think eventually analysts, coaches, everyone except for maybe physios and, and, and will probably separate, right? Because the skills... Do know, these even... power-hitting coaches have to be like, from the cricket background, because I know Mike Young, who was a great baseballer, was a fielding coach for Australia for a long time. And I know Ian Chappell didn't like that idea, but I'm just trying to say that, for example, if you're getting a power hitter, do you necessarily need a cricket person to do that? Or, I don't know, can you get a golfer or a, a baseball uh, striker? So Julian Wood, and I forget which IPL team he works for, sorry, but I think he's working with one of the IPL teams. He's brought over a lot of baseball methods. The problem is that baseball is hit full tosses, mate. And golfers hit a ball that sits still, right? It's not the same. What you might get is people who help with power bases uh, coming from other sports. But I think, to be honest, most, I think in cricket, we kind of know what that is. And we've worked that out on our own over the last couple of years. But you might get specific things. But uh, I think Chris Lynn's a very good example of someone who set up like a baseballer and ended up being quite limited because of that. And, you know, I, I mean, I know as an analyst, we started bowling to him like we would we would you would to a baseballer uh which is you know just find the 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 part of his swing where he can't hit and it became quite easy because he didn't he stopped batting like a batter for a long time there uh, i think he's gone back to it slightly um so yeah you will see more specialists in all those sorts of positions coming through thanks for your questions keshuv what's your question yeah hi jared so the question is uh, basically i heard your podcast on Virat Kohli with Mark Nicholas and Jade Dunn back in. So, I think that was done uh, before IPL and, you know, now mm. that we are halfway through the IPL and we have seen how he's doing this year as well, you know, the strike rate has been embarrassingly low for somebody like a Virat Kohli. Like, I think last night he played with a strike rate of less than 100. So, if you were to select the Indian team for the World Cup in Australia, I mean, for the better of Indian cricket, would you drop him based on how he has gone, especially striking? I mean, his strike rate is, I think, overall 110 or something this year. Or would you, like, since it's happening in Australia and he has got a great record there, so would you still take him and probably find a spot uh, in the 11 still? I just don't think they need all these anchors. So... I would, if I was running the Indian team, I'd be looking for any way possible to have fewer anchors. And if that was the case, then, you know, Virat Kohli is probably the, he's no longer captain. So he's probably the, the easiest uh, anchor to get rid of. So I think that probably answers th that side of it. That's in the team. Uh, in the squad? Yeah. I mean, if it becomes, I mean, I, I, you know, this has been a tournament that's been quite good for, um, for fast bowling 
Um, you know, that some of the pitches have been a little bit lively. He He's just out of form. So whether you take him in the squad and he's your backup bat player, I don't, I don't know. You'd have to really go through and balance that team out and, and see how it came out. But I think that they have a lot of players who have the ability or the ability and the mindset of modern T20 cricket. And I think that he has always played T20 cricket a little bit like it's one day cricket, which he's absolutely spectacular at. So why would you not bring those methods over? Um, I don't think he's ever quite got T20 cricket and he's still been really good at it because he's obviously, well, he was the best three format player in the world for um, after AB de Villiers. So I think that that's probably, I can't see, oh, just trying to think of the team off the top of my head. I can't see why he's there. But if you want a backup for the anchors and, you know, and it's out of him or Shikha Darwin, maybe you take him just because you, you think that Shikha Darwin might not make as many runs in Australia, which I, I mean, you have to go back to the numbers and have a look at the two of them. But they might want one of those players as a backup. But in the in the main eleven, I just I don't see the point if you've got KL Rahul and you have you know Rohit Sharma um, up top. I don't really understand where where Virat Kohli fits into that kind of team. And I think there are so many other dynamic players that they have available to them throughout the rest of the order. I'm, I'm not sure. And 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 for me, it's not really a form thing, right? Because over the last, it, this is now he's in terrible form at the moment. But if you look at his numbers over the last three or four years in the IPL, you, you have to think to yourself that this is this is a player who's, you know, uh, there may be other players who can offer more. And, you know, that's a more than fine way of of, uh, of having those conversations. Um, they should be having them with Virat as well. Yeah, that's what I was coming to. Uh, like, I wanted to ask whether it's just the form or do you think, you know, his T20 sort of hitting abilities also? Oh, I'm not way. worried about that because if that's the case, then it's been happening for four years. I think that for whatever has happened in the last four years, he hasn't been able to maximize his T20 batting the way that he did in that period before. You know, 2016, Virat Kohli was a completely different player. 2017, 2018, probably. All those all those p- periods was a completely different player. And, you know, he's an automatic, that player is an automatic selection. But you're going back a lot of years now before the last time he was consistently good in T20 cricket. I think it's a conversation to have with him as well. This is the thing that I don't think people understand that you don't just drop players like Virat Kohli or, you know, it's the same with Steve Smith. Steve Smith's probably not in Australia's best T20 team, but dropping him is also an issue, right? Because you, you want to get buy-in from these people and you also, you want to give them a chance because what Virat Kohli can do against the best bowlers in the world might still be better than anyone else that you could put in that Indian team, right? That, that's, a, that's a truth. There is a reason he is Virat Kohli. Didn't happen by accident, you know. He didn't didn't answer an ad in the back of uh, on the back of a Wheaties box, right? And I think sometimes people forgot, you know, forget that that's how those players got to that level, and they did it by being consistently great. The the point though is that when he is consistently not great for a long period of time, there has to be conversations. And I think that I think that in cricket in general, we've never been as good at having those conversations with those players. Um, and it's hard with star players. It really is. It's hard to be able to say, imagine saying to him, we want you to come out, but we want you to be a backup. That's not an easy thing to be able to do, but you're Royal Dravid, right? You're the BCCI. At a certain point, you have to be the adults in the room and say, look, we need you to be this player. Do you think you can be this player for us? Yes or no? He'll answer that. Um, and then you have to manage him when, you know, uh, whichever direction that it all goes. None of the nothing. None of this is easy. Running a cricket team is not easy. Making these decisions is not easy. Most most fans just want the new young players in, right? And it's like, but statistically speaking, most World Cups are won with older teams, right? And so it doesn't particularly follow on. Yeah, just one last follow up. So, so uh, yeah, so uh, you know, doesn't matter how many questions get raised or how much we speak about this. I think he, I think Indian team will still take him to Australia. But uh, do you think? If he had to give up on format, would it be T20 after this World Cup? I don't know. I, I don't know him well enough, so I don't know what his priorities are. I mean, he'd probably make more money playing to if uh, the IPL over the next few years, wouldn't he? It would be silly for him to to give it up. It's not. No, I mean from Indian team. I mean, Indian team. He, does he play many internationals? He, are you talking about ten games? Yeah, I mean T20 internationals. Yeah, but does, I'm asking you, how many has he played over the last three years? Is it many? 
I think he's apart from the last Sri Lanka series, he has been a part of all the T20s. I guess. Yeah, but how much is that? that? I mean, that's my my real question is, like, if if I'm him, I'm thinking to myself, what format do I not like the best, and what format will allow me to prolong my career as long as possible? If that if that's what, the way he's thinking, and we don't know the way he's thinking, uh, T20 internationals are kind of an easy one, right? Um, look, I think I think after this series after this IPL I think he's probably going to have you know some very long chats with you know his wife uh, with his coach with his agent with his manager all these different people um, and start to work out what Virat Kohli actually wants to do with the next few years does he want to get back to the top because I think we all know what a driven person he is if he suddenly decides that this is ridiculous that you know that test cricket has embarrassed him and he hasn't been as good as he should be in the IPL um, I, and I think his numbers in one day cricket have pretty much stayed pretty high, which is quite interesting, which maybe tells you what a different level player is in that format. But what does he actually want to get out of this? Right. Because, you know, you see that sometimes with senior players where sometimes they just go, you look at AB DeVries, just got too much for him. He could have played on for another four or five years without any problems. And there were some of those interviews you saw um, during the last IPL where he just looked spent as a person. And he was talking about how hard it was for him to get back fit again. Virat Kohli is a different kind of person. Maybe he thinks, do you know what? You know, I want to have a, like a Tiger Woods or a Roger Federer like um, peak at the end of my career. What do I need to do? Do I need to reshape my life around one format of cricket? Do I need to reshape my life around the game of cricket and less so about the other distractions? Uh, you know, does he need a better work-life balance in either direction, right? Maybe he needs to think about cricket less and, um, and relax a little bit more. Uh, whatever that may be, he needs to start having those conversations. And this is what I think in cricket we're not particularly good at. And so let's say he doesn't get picked for this, um, this World Cup. The, the thought process will be that he never plays another World Cup again for India. Uh, T20 World Cup, right? And it's like, that's not what you should be thinking. You should be thinking where at the moment he's not peak Virat Kohli and he, he, he's not going to help us. And maybe, maybe him and India get together and just like, I just don't think I'm going to be able to help you in this World Cup. And they're all really honest with each other. Great. We can all have that conversation and we can move on. Separate to that though, um, then he says, but that doesn't mean I'm, I'm actually, what I really want to do now is I really just want to play white ball cricket. Or what I really want to do now is I want to play test matches as a specialist batter um, and um, I want to uh, continue to play in the IPL. But I want you to know that if my form comes back, I expect to be selected when my form warrants it. We have no idea. This is the thing. There are so many different moving parts to this. And because of Virat Kohli, we speculate on it. But I promise you, uh, Aaron Finch is having these conversations or having these thoughts. Uh, all these players are having all these different thoughts about how to get the most out of themselves at the end. What is it that they really want? You know, what are they playing for? What is the final end game uh, for them? How are they trying to build their career? You, you know, um, all these different players, uh, if they're not having these grown-up conversations, should be having these grown-up conversations. That's the sport now, right? Some kid from, um, you know, uh, UP comes through and, uh, and suddenly there's a lot of pressure on you. And you, you need to have these conversations. And I think too often in cricket, we, we think about, oh, he's a legend and he's des deserved his spot. I think they deserve different kinds of treatment if you've achieved different things. Don't think that means that you deserve your spot. I think that means you deserve to have grown-up conversations about where you're going from here and the best way to prepare you for each individual game. I think that is the problem um, that we see too often in cricket. This We get too reverential with legends or we just flick them um, and even if their form comes back, we don't select them again, right? It's like, it, it, that's not the, you can have one of the best players of all time who gets to 32 and dis discovers that a technical, uh, has a technical problem or gets worked out for a little bit. And for the next two years does not deserve to play in their international team, but maybe between 34 and 38, they do again and they don't get picked quite often. Or when they get picked, we all go, oh, they're bringing him back again. Well, Yeah. Because at that stage, they weren't in the best 11 players. They've gone off and changed what they do and they've come back. And I think I was very guilty of that. And I think other people are very guilty of that as well. Yeah, plus he's also not the captain anymore. So things are different. So it also uh, a huge deal depends on whether uh, Rohit Sharma and Rahul Dravid has you know, him in the plans for the 11 in Australia probably. I think the best way for me to put it, right, 
right? It's, it's, I, I think about this if I was like, I don't know, director of cricket. Um, you know, so Raul Dravid and Rohit Sharma was there. I, my first port of call would, be, would probably be them in the selection committee and be like, do we think he's in our best 11 players? And my guess is at the moment they would say no, right? I then asked, do we think he is our best backup because it is Australia? The answer there is probably closer to yes and probably is yes, right? Um, I would think if you asked all those people, generally former players trust experienced players, especially when they've been successful, right? Then the next conversation is, what do we need to do between now and then to get him to be that player? Now, does that mean he doesn't play the one-off test against England, for instance? Does that mean that we get him playing in the 100? Does that mean he plays with India A or Indian domestic cricket or whatever that may be? Uh, does he go off and train in Australia, uh, have a two-month, relocate his family to Melbourne or Sydney or Adelaide or Hobart or wherever he, need, he needs to for that period? What do they need to do to, to do that? Because they need to be a part of that conversation. But also then Virat Kohli needs to be part of that conversation. And he, his main, uh, you know, batting gurus these days might be BCCI, but they may not be. A lot of those players have private gurus that they talk to and uh, private, you know, batting instructors and coaches and all that sort of thing. Does he go to them and go, "What? Uh, this is what I want to do. What, what path do you think I should be doing? And then everyone gets together and they make an informed decision. What shouldn't happen is what happened with at the end of his captaincy career where it's being leaked left, right and centre and, you know, that's that's not how you treat top players. And that's also not, Virat Kohli shouldn't be part of that sort of stuff either, right? What should it's what should be a plan of and if and if Rohit Sharma and Raul Driver could say, look, Virat, we don't think you're in our best 16 players, we're not going to take you, then it's Virat's choice to go off and prove them wrong, right? And that's fine. He's allowed to do that. And if he does, they'll have if they lose the World Cup and for the next six months he's um smashing runs in every every time he plays T twenty cricket they're going to look like doofuses, right? That, that's how it works. I, you know, that's how, that's, how, that's how all of this sort of shit works, right? And what I want cricket to get to is to that level. You know, I wrote about Virat Kohli and there were so many comments going, drop him, drop him, drop him. And we had it from AB, uh, one of the Patreons earlier. It's like, it obviously should be dropped. Do you know how many players in the world have ever had this level of batting talent? Right. If you, you only ever have at any, at any point in your time so much talent available to you as an international team, to be able to go, ah, oh, that's no good. We'll, we'll ship them away. I've seen what, that, what happens to teams when they do stuff like that. Has it ever happened with you? Like uh, you, uh, whenever you work with teams, so you thought, okay, he's not uh, in our uh, best 11, but then that guy proves you wrong. Yeah, because the best... Uh, I don't know. I've, I've talked about this before and, um, you know, it's come up quite a few times, but your best 11 in, in test match cricket, the same 11 players have only ever played 11 times in a test match in the history of the game. Best 11 doesn't mean anything. It's something that we talk, it's something we talk about all the time, but realistically there is so much change from year to year. It is so rare for a championship team to have the exact same roster from one year to the next year. There's always change. There's always different things. And there are players who are absolutely spectacular in cricket in some conditions who you shouldn't be using in other conditions, right? Or, you know, just won't work. Or they're just tired. Or they're just not feeling it. Or they're in a bad form slump. Or they've got a technical problem. When you try and keep everyone in the best 11, because that's your, your theory, that's where a lot of these problems come. Is Virat Kohli still an incredibly talented player? I would suggest, looking at his one-day record, that he has not completely dropped off a cliff the sort of Michael Vaughan cliff. And he's a better player than Michael Vaughan to begin with. So it's not the best. But there was a point where it looked like it was pointless Michael Vaughan going out to bat, right? And I could not see how he was ever going to make runs against international bowlers ever again. I don't think I have felt that way with Virat Kohli. And he is such a high-level player that to suddenly get rid of that level of experience and knowledge and talent doesn't make any sense. If he's not in the best 11 at the moment, it doesn't matter. Right. The more important thing is, what do we do to get you back to the level we want to get you back to? Do you want to get back? Is this the work that you want to do? Is there just one format that you want to play? Is there two formats that you want to play? Do you just want to play in the IPL? And if things go really well, we'll give you a call. All those things should be available to him. And I just think that the way we frame things and the way that we talk about cricket, with the final 11 is like so, so final. Um, and it's like, that's not how cricket should work. Um, when I was talking about, I was talking about the, the IPL being weaker recently uh, with the extra two teams coming in. One of the things I was talking about is five overseas players um, could help. And 
and I think a lot of people were like, oh, you just want, you know, you think the Indian players aren't as good. No, I think there are situations where you could go into a lineup with two overseas players in the IPL. And I think there are other times when you need five overseas players, right? That flexibility is the way that cricket should think. And part of the reason we don't think that way is because at most you're only ever going to play 10 test matches in a year. At most you're probably only ever going to play, you know, 15 T20 games for your franchise a year and 10 or 15 one-day internationals a year. And so we put so much pressure on who's in the 11, who's out of the 11. I think we do that much more than any other sport, whereas realistically, it's like, he's still one of our best batting talents. How do we get him back to being one of our best batting talents? If he misses a game, it means almost absolutely nothing at the moment. You know, Virat Kohli missing the next series that India play may have absolutely no bearing on the fact of whether he plays in that um, in, in, in the World Cup or not. And I think that, I think cricket's starting to understand those sorts of things. Anyway, mate, thank you for your questions. No matter what happens, we end up talking about uh, Virat Kohli for hours on end. Thank you to everyone for the questions again today. As I said, 99.94 is the new venture. It's where I'll be putting up my podcasts and everything. There's going to be an app and there'll be a, a beta test coming soon. But if you can follow us on Twitter, it's certainly the best place to start at the moment. And a huge thank you to Everyone who's come on this chat today, uh, another very good one. Technology was good today. Eh? We, we have to be happy for small mercies there. And I will see you again next time. Talk to you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do. And that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcasts into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Mm-hmm.